encouraging me and letting me chair this meeting this morning. When Fran was talking yesterday, she talked about a couple that uh, early in, in their recovery that, that was such an influence on their life. And, and in addition to my first sponsor and her husband, who also did that for us, um, Virginia has been a very special person in my life. And I can tell you that I don't even know what she said to us and, and, and what we talked about that one, that one day here alone 13 years ago, the first time she was here. But she just happened to be in the right place at the right time, and she influenced our life immensely. So it is my honor and pleasure to uh, introduce you to Virginia, Charlotte, North Carolina. Good morning. My name is Virginia. I'm a member of the Thursday Morning Al-Anon Family Group in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, and it's good to be here. And I'm looking down at my watch, and since I didn't change the time when we came here, it's time for us to close the meeting. So will you join me in the serenity prayer? <laughs> um, there, are, there are two, the things are, they're too numerous to tell you what I have to be grateful for this morning and just for this weekend, the generosity of a lady bringing me bows for my hair that I have difficulty buying these days and in multiple colors and time and money and effort involved, and I'm truly grateful um, for the fruit basket. Oh, it was wonderful. I don't know who put it together, but what a knife that you could cut the fruit and spread the cheese. Uh, the nice room. Um, the mugs, and we all have the mugs, aren't they nice to have? Um, and the good food, uh, the fun, the fun. You know, um, we hear in that, in that other room from where we Alnons meet about being happy, joyous, and free. Uh, sometimes I look at round meetings and I think, why do they keep coming back? Their faces don't tell me they're having any fun. <laughs> And uh, I'm kind of out of step, and I say weird things, and it's like I've cussed in church, you know. It's not supposed to be. It's serious business, you know. Uh, but I thank you very much. And for those of you that have heard me before that uh, uh, don't feel, if you want to take a nap, it's fine. And if you want to leave, it's fine and all of that. Um, somebody said to me, uh, I called to say that I wouldn't be at one of the meetings that I normally attend, uh, that I wouldn't be there. She and I kind of make sure the doors are always open, you know. And uh, she said, "Going." I said, we're going out of town. She said, where are you going? And told her, she said, are you speaking? And I, I don't go around telling people that I'm going someplace to share. I mean, if they're there, they'll find it out. And if they're not there, what makes the difference, you know? And uh, But I don't lie when they ask me. And I said, yes. And she said, my goodness, hasn't everybody heard you? And... Um, <laughs> And I said, um, well, they asked me. And long ago, after the first time I ever shared at my home group, and then I was asked to share again, I had that business, that, that ego that says, oh, I may say something or run somebody off or turn them off about the program. That was pure, pure ego on my part. Because, you know, if you or any one of us are here for the right reason, God will not allow us to hear anything that will harm us. He will be able to take the most distorted story and let it be a message to those that are really seeking, and I believe that. 
And so it relieves me of the responsibility for what I say here this morning. I've asked God to put the thoughts in my mind and the words in my mouth that someone needs to hear, fully aware I may be the only one that needs to hear it. Because it's in sharing at group level and other levels that things have come out. And I've heard myself say, and I thought, that's right, that's right. Because my secrets aren't secrets once shared. And in the, in the, out in the open and in the air, they can carry different proportions than just in my mind. But thank you for being here, and I appreciate that. Uh, there's one thing I said to a delightful, handsome young couple that were at the breakfast table with me this morning, and I think it's important for me to share, and I'm going to share it, and that is this. There are so many of you here that could be our children or our grandchildren, and I want to tell you don't judge us by the package we ride around in. Regardless of our age, and for you gray heads like me, regardless of their age, we all are human beings and we're capable of feeling great joy and disappointment and pain. We all have dreams and we all have hopes. And yes, those change, those change, those things we hope for, those things we hurt over, change as the time goes by, but the capacity to feel those things is always constant. And so don't think old hat with us and don't think what do they know because they're young forget our ages meet on the on the spiritual level the human level of what we are and what we are not and what we can learn and share with one another i was born down on the eastern shore of maryland right on the chesapeake bay and it was a wonderful life and there was a lot of drinking i thought nothing of but i never lived in a in a with the attitude that to drinking was a sin or a moral issue. Excuse me. <clears throat> it was a family that was in very comfortably fixed. We had everything we needed and more so and, and a wonderful lifestyle. And then something that the majority of you have just read about happened and some of you know about, the depression hit. And this family was wiped out financially. But they more than that, they were wiped out inside. You see, uh, it was important for them where they lived and where they'd gone to school and what they wore and da 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 And I didn't know these things because, you see, then, as a child, children were seen and not heard. You didn't ask questions. If they wanted you to know something, they'd tell you. Otherwise, you didn't know and you just have to not know. Uh, I think there was a lot of tyrants as heads of families in those years. They told the children and their family members what to do without explanation. But every summer we'd spend a month with our maternal grandparents in western Pennsylvania. And we went on our annual visit when I was seven and were never to return to Maryland. And at that time my father stayed in Maryland. He was, had a heart condition and he stayed there and he was to die in Maryland. And my mother left. And that was, uh, it's been a biggie in my life that Al-Anon, you know, the purpose of Al-Anon uh, is for the relatives and friends of alcoholics. But, oh, it goes much further. It covers every crevice of my life and every dark corner of my heart and everything. It has affected my entire being. Uh, my mother left, and I felt, uh, uh, what had I done wrong? Now, I know that was reverse egotism, the negative egotism, because I never thought, what's wrong with my brothers, my sister, and I? It was, what did I have done? Why would she leave? Um, I didn't know where she was for a number of years. I know that I reached a point where I felt, I felt abandoned. I never thought what problems did that woman have that she would leave. 
after Buck and I were married and we had children, I couldn't imagine having children and not knowing where they were, if they were fed, if they were clothed, if they were warm, if it was cold. I couldn't comprehend that. And it made that even a bigger issue in my life. Why did she leave? Um, I've learned in Al-Anon that people have to do what they have to do because they have to do it. And it doesn't matter whether it's right or wrong, we have to do what we have to do. I learned in Al-Anon that because I held out, I thought this emptiness that I felt would be filled if I had a relationship with a mother and father like I saw many other people have. I didn't know that when some person in my life was incapable of being responsible as they might or should be, that God does not deny me that what I need because of their inability. There's always another. It's the old door, old deal of when one door closes, another opens. And I know that I have received all the love and acceptance and understanding that uh, I never received as a child through members of Alcoholics Anonymous and the Alan family groups. Went to live with these grandparents and they died within seven months of one another when I was 11. And I became a ward of the orphan's court. And I felt very, very sorry for me. Now, you know, I didn't, I could not identify these emotions then. It's through repeated fourth step inventories I've come to recognize these things. But what's wrong with me? And I, I lived with a family with a different name and I was not allowed to go to visit overnight or have anybody overnight and I felt different. On top of that, I was five foot nine when I finished eighth grade and everybody thought I was the teacher when I changed schools. <laughs> And I was always seen as more mature and more capable. Any of you that are large will un probably understand this. There seems to be uh, we are endowed with qualities, good qualities of being strong and responsible and, and uh, have good judgment uh, because we're that way. I, I used to hate little women. You know, have you ever noticed little women, they'll put it in gear and they take these little steps, you know, and, you know. I remember at the office, I would say something like, this typewriter needs moved, and they'd say, where are you going to put it, Virginia? <laughs> and there was a woman named Margaret Brown could walk under my arm, and she'd say, this typewriter needs moved, and they'd say, where do you want it, Margaret? Uh, you know, you... <laughs> but I found, and I used to say, you know, uh, dynamite comes in, sarcasm was my protection, dynamite comes in small packages, and I'd say, yes, and so does poison. <laughs> Anyhow, when I was uh, finishing high school, uh, I identify when alcoholics talk about taking geographical cures. I thought if I got away from Pennsylvania, everything would be all right. And I approached Orphan's Court and asked permission to leave, and, and I chose a school in Southern California, and I was granted permission. I was socially mature, but I was a dumb Dora. I didn't know anything about the facts of life. Guys would tell dirty jokes in the back of Steady Hall, and I'd just sit there, and everybody would laugh, and they'd say, boy, look at that Virginia. She can keep a straight face. It was no problem. I didn't get the joke, you know. <laughs> but um, I knew what to do and how to conduct myself and so forth. And so Orphan's Court gave me permission, and I went to California. In the next three years, I was to do a considerable amount of drinking that gave me pause to reflect when I got here in which room I belonged. And that had to do with something maybe I'll talk about later, maybe I won't. Better talk about it now. Everybody in Al-Anon was so good, I wanted to throw up. You know, they'd say, since John's been sober in AA and I've been in Al-Anon, we've never had a crossword. And I'd think, what? And, they, you know, they were just floating around the rooms. And they were so sweet. I, you know, I went, ugh, you know. And uh, they never talked about 
trying to figure out how to kill and get away with it. They never, they never talked about problems with the police. They never talked about unpaid bills. They, they never talked about, um, in the most intimate life uh, action a man and wife can share, the disappointment being called by some other woman's name. They never talked about these things, and they were so good. And I started going to open AA meetings right away because we didn't have that many Al-Anon meetings in those days. And I identified with alcoholic women. And I came to the understanding for me that one of the reasons I did was because they were honest. They, they spoke, they told it like it was. And I think that was only out of necessity because dishonesty for an alcoholic can lead to drunkenness. And you and I and Al-Anon, we can be dishonest and we just slip and slide around. And we don't, it isn't as obvious. Those that know us, it's obvious. But we don't end up in, in, in a state of physical drunkenness like alcoholics do. But at any rate, back to my story. I went to California and I associated with a drinking crowd and did a lot of drinking and, and I had a lot of fun, did a lot of things I wish I hadn't done because I'd do anything to fit in with the crowd. Uh, I had no um, um, mind of my own. I had a mind of my own, but I couldn't take action. Uh, I, had to, I never felt as good as or qualified and I always felt, felt ill at ease and all. And it wasn't anything others did to me. It was what I did to myself. Um, I had a roommate at the Evangelion Residence for Women, which was a hotel run for women by the Salvation Army. There was no, there was no pressure on you to belong to the, uh, their uh, religion, but uh, it was a home for women. And I had a roommate from North Carolina, and she was returning to North Carolina. And by this time, I had a brother in the South Pacific and one in the European theater and a sister following a GI husband around the country and we were the only grandchildren on either side of the house so there was no aunts or uncles or any homes to go to and so I said to her I said wait and I'll go with you and I came to North Carolina and very shortly thereafter I met the man to whom I'm still married and you heard him speak last night and when he said that about my um, giving him the finger about something he said that is not true. That's one thing I have been able to avoid in my life. I've not used that means of communicating. But I did say, I did say immediately to Betty and Joe, it's a lie. I don't. <laughs> so uh, I guess I've, I verbally did, you know, anyhow. Anyhow, Beck and I met and we, and he was, he's right. I, you know, um, I, I did, um, he said bold. Well, do you not think that he would say that I was astute and brilliant, that I would recognize what a jewel he was? Instead, he sees me as bold, you know. But I want to tell you, I only chased him one night, then he chased me. <laughs> and that's the truth, wherever you are. <laughs> but anyhow, we were dating, we were having a lot of fun and everything, and... and um, I had great needs that I brought into the marriage, didn't know I had. But uh, we started, um, I needed him to need me, didn't know that. But I wrote a script. You know, a lot of times we talk about script writing and all that. And I wrote a script and I was, I was going to say to him, and I did, I'm leaving, I'm going back to California. And he was supposed to say, oh no, don't go, I love you, I need you, let's be married. And so I said one Friday night, I'm going back to California. And he said, when are you leaving? And um, my pride was such I couldn't say, oh, I was just wanting to see what you'd say. I went downtown the next morning, and I bought a ticket, and I returned to California. 
and I have forgotten sometimes to share with you that um, he came to California cold sober and got me <laughs> and we returned to North Carolina and I want to tell you that and 54 years ago when we when this is just prior to our marriage if you weren't from North Carolina you were a foreigner and uh, Buck had came from a good family and I hear so many derogatory statements about in-laws and I want to stand right here and tell you I had my in-laws were good to me they didn't understand me always and I didn't always understand me but they were good people and they were good to me and I would suggest to some people that have uh, a less than uh, perfect shall I say uh, opinion of their in-laws perhaps you ought to look closer because I think that most their I don't know any human beings that want bad for their their children or the people they marry they really don't it comes to the bottom line but anyhow I was a foreigner and I can understand if one of our children was going to marry talking about marrying somebody who was from someplace else and no family didn't know anything about him I'd be apprehensive too and when we came back to Charlotte that spring we were going to work and save some money and, and so we could furnish an apartment and all that stuff but instead we went ahead and we were married and um his family weren't too delighted um and i think they tried to one brother in particular tried to talk him not talk him out of it but tell him you know it wasn't a thing to do of course there were a lot of years i wished he had won the <laughs> argument with buck but that's another story uh i had developed and not knowing it uh, a very deep reverse snobbery uh, about people with money social position or education because I'd seen people in those positions and I saw them as shallow and vain because when times got hard for them and they went to pieces well I know now it's because they had no inner resources and since on which to rely when things were going badly for them and I've learned since I've been in Al-Anon that it's perfectly alright if you have a good education it's perfectly alright if if you have a handsome bank account it's perfectly alright if you're socially prominent or any of those things if that isn't the only thing you have if that's all you have I feel sorry for you but if it, it's alright if that you know but inside ourselves is where we really live and inside ourselves regardless of what's going on around us is where we make our decision and make our choices and I can't I can no longer blame and point fingers at other people and places and things for what the things I did and what I was not they were choices I made and we all make them so I was perfectly satisfied I had someone to love and someone to love me and everything was going to be fine and we were we were um, we paid our bills every week we were working weekly so you know what kind of salaries we were drawing and what money we had left over to determine how many groceries we bought but everything was fine except that every Christmas was it was always drinking always drinking um, in the restaurant business it seemed like uh, seemed to be an appropriate gift to give them people in the restaurant would be bottles of booze and Buck would have bottles of booze and of course you've got to use what you have you can't waste it you can't let it just sit uh, and it, so the Christmases weren't much fun um, as time went on we had two children born to us and we both were working and and as time went on uh, Christmas had started you know you know like the first of December the celebrating and go to right after New Year's and, and then it got back to Halloween and went to Valentine's Day and then it got back you know to 
Labor Day and and went to St. Patrick's. You know what I'm saying. The the celebration time came more and more and more. And I had this ser- terrible sense of guilt about my mother and her leaving, the, my, feeling this responsibility. I think one of the most common traits that we in Al-Anon must address is an exaggerated and misplaced sense of responsibility. I think we take it on ourselves and then we get a lot of help too because we hear if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't. And so that adds to the feeling that we have that we are responsible. I take issue with people that talk about their bossy spouses that run everything in their lives. They've come into AA and they get sober and they're sober a short period of time and they resent the fact that they're usually it's the wife is running everything. And I, I try to be diplomatic and tactful, but I want to ask them, uh, who paid the rent when you were gone? Who earned the money to buy the groceries for the children? Uh, we take on a lot of responsibilities, not because we want them or that we volunteered for them, but it's a matter of survival. If you don't do it, it doesn't get done. And then after an alcoholic gets sober, we're rather hesitant to let go of it because we don't, we don't have much confidence or much trust. It's been destroyed. And it says in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous in words, and this is not verbatim, that our track record is not too good. We're going to have to prove ourselves. And I like my new Al-Anon members that I talk with to read that because I want to let them know that when they're apprehensive, when their newly sober mate is late coming home, that's natural. But they must they can get over it. But it's natural not to feel so guilty about being suspicious when they call and say, I'll be home in an hour or an hour later than usual. Because we used to get those calls and it would be a week later or two weeks later. But at any rate, we take on responsibility we don't want, and then we're hesitant to give it up because we can't trust. And then that's one of the blessings that came to me early on. Our children had always come to me because their father rarely was there or he was drunk and asked me things. But almost immediately, and I did not think it, it just happened, so I know it was God working in my life, they would come to me and I'd say, we have to talk to your father. And I'm so glad that 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 took place. There were a lot of things that didn't take place right off, but that did. Well, we, uh, Buck told you, we had an opportunity to go into business in South Carolina, and it was hugely successful. And two things happened at that time. Buck became the club joiner and and all that he told you about last night. And I became very important running of that business. I was useful. I was needed. And I need to be needed. And we all do need. But when it's an exaggerated need, we're in trouble. Um, so, I, but I was important and I needed to be needed. Uh, I remember Beck had been on a drunk and had been away and I thought, now when he comes back, I'd tried everything. Tom, uh, Joe was talking about hunting equipment that he bought. I, I bought Buck everything conceivable to get, his, get him a hobby. You know, I bought him hunting equipment and fishing equipment and popular mechanics. I stood by with gritted teeth while he spent thousands of dollars on race cars and NAS- running NASCAR and Daytona Beach. And we have more money tied up in race cars than we had in our house. But I was grinning and bearing it, you know, he wasn't going to drink, so that wasn't going to be all right. Um, he had been gone on a drunk, and I thought, okay, I'm just going to ignore him when he comes back. I have lectured, I've cried, I've raised Cain, you know, I've done everything. I'm going to ignore him. I'm going to go on, take care of the business, and take care of the kids, and that's it. 
And after it came back that about six weeks later, I wasn't feeling well, I went to the doctor and he said I was pregnant. Now that's failure. Now if you don't know why it's failure, I'm not going to explain it to you. Because <laughs> I was not going to even talk to this man. And I, I, I have to say and that I was not too delighted when I found that out. But I must tell you that that child has been a blessing in our lives. At the time, we had two daughters, and one was convinced that if mother would stop raising hell, daddy would stop drinking. The other thought that if daddy would stop drinking, mother would straighten out. So it was two sides, one daughter with each one of the parents. And when this last child was born, she was the, the great equalizer. The girls focused on her. She was buffeted. But there was a comfort zone for her between her crazy parents uh, but, but her sisters offered her that. She has been a blessing and she's one of the nicest women you'd ever want to know today. Um, probably the most spiritual of the three daughters and she has truly been a blessing and that I constantly must remember and do remember that those things that I looked on as being unfortunate or I, I didn't want to have happen or well, so many have turned out to be blessings. Indeed, alcoholism in itself has turned out to be a blessing. I don't know whether I could have learned the lessons without alcoholism that I've learned, but I know now. You know, we hear people say, I'm grateful my husband's an alcoholic. I can't say that. I can say, I'm grateful my, my husband's an alcoholic sober in AA. I don't know that I could be grateful if he was still out there drinking. But I'm grateful for that because it got me to Al-Anon. Anyhow, Beck and I went in business and everything was rocking along and uh, things deteriorated, you know, they went, you know, alcoholism is a progressive disease uh, and it's a downward spiral. If it isn't materially, it is physically and it is spiritually. It's a downward road. I was constantly trying to figure out what I should do, what I wasn't doing that I should do, what I what I wasn't doing I should and what I was that I shouldn't. And um, uh, my friend, what did you say your name was, fella? Um, uh, the funny last name, Drysdale. Well, anyhow, said that I'm tough. Uh, I remember talking to my first sponsor and saying, oh, how I would like to be different. And she said, you can be with this program. I said, oh, I'd like to be soft-spoken. I'd like to be gentle. I'd like to be kind. I'd like not to have this mind that comes out with things before I even think these words. She said, Virginia, you can't change your personality. You must redirect it. You must put that aggression and that all of that that's in a, behind you in another direction. And so I guess I'll be a tough cookie all of my life. But I want to tell you, Jim Drysdale, had I not been tough, I wouldn't have survived. And so any other tough cookies, half heart. <laughs> oh, dear. What it was like. It was like at our house and in our lives like in yours. Maybe a different day of the week, a different holiday. Maybe you started the argument instead of him. It doesn't matter. The scars of alcoholism have nothing to do with circumstance. They have to do with the eroding of our very souls. It has to do with our loss of self-esteem and self-respect. It has to do with the loss of the capacity to love or feel love. 
and has the capacity, losing the capacity to trust or being trustworthy. If you want to know what the real nature of the wrongs that we talk about in step five for me have their basis in the seven deadly sins. And what are the principles for me of our program are the flip side of those seven deadly sins. And you know, our dictionary, the dictionary that I use, and I use one repeatedly because I, I don't, I don't always use words that are proper or I use them out of context or I use them because I have a sense of feeling of what they mean instead of the real meaning. And so I look up definitions of words and you might ask, say something and I say, what do you mean? And then many times it means different than what that definition is, but then I know where I stand. And sober in there goes on from the obvious and it means that we are sober if our prejudices and our passions are not controlling our lives. So we may be so pure and so good and so saintly and uh, even sober. I do believe there are a few sober saintly. Uh, well, anyhow. Um, <laughs> but if indulge in anger or pride or lust or greed or gluttony or envy or sloth, I'm drunk. Not physically, but emotionally. And we all know that we have to go, we've all learned from Alcoholics Anonymous and from their members that sobriety is not putting a cork in the jug. It's just opening the door to enter into sobriety. Because if it was not necessary to address those three phases of alcoholism, we would not be plagued by these seven deadly sins or the need to do something about them and to eliminate them from our lives. I am so grateful that we came into the program when we did. I can be grateful we didn't have as many meetings then as we have now because to get to go and be with program, it was necessary to go to open AA. I'm grateful we didn't have the literature in Al-Anon that we have now. We didn't have a 12 and 12. We didn't even have a pamphlet on the 12 uh, traditions then. And I cut my teeth on the, with the AA 12 and 12, and I'm so grateful. And I'm grateful for the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I do not believe in using these books at group level, but people I sponsor and people that I talk with and talk with me, when we use these volumes in addition to our own Al-Anon literature. Because you see, I don't believe God just endowed AA with wisdom. I don't believe God endowed just Al-Anon with wisdom. I don't believe that we have a corner on the market for spirituality and principled living. It's out there in the world. What, I, what joins us together is our common bond of alcoholism and the fact that we all understand one another, at least one thing about one another. Old Burton Crawford used to say alcohol, AA stands for Alcoholics Anonymous, absolutely. But it also stands for the, he said it stood for absolutely amazing. And isn't it absolutely amazing? But he said it also stands for the afflicted and the affected. My husband is afflicted with alcoholism and I am affected by alcoholism. And the cure lies in the 12 steps. My recovery does not lie in your life experience. My recovery does not lie in your understanding of the steps. My recovery does not lie in your ability to make wise choices. It lies in my journey and what I'm seeking and what I do. And the steps will always be available to you wherever you are, just as God is available to us wherever we are. 
We may never see one another again, but the steps will always be there for us. And that's where I need to put my dependency of recovery and accepting that those steps are available to me through human beings, God's message, as far as I'm concerned. To me, it's couched in a, they're couched in a language out of all of the things I had heard in church and then reached a point in my life I was afraid it was blasphemy for me to use those, to even read the Bible or, to, or think in terms of religion, that surely God would zap me. How could I do the things I was doing and then dare to approach him? You see, I thought you had to get good to go to God. I didn't know you could go to him any time. And I didn't know that he wasn't far away, that he was always with me, even though I wasn't thinking of him or looking for him. So the steps are the recovery program. And very quickly, I want to share a little bit of the steps. And it's just a little bit. Because you know, no matter how long we're in the program, we always have something more we can learn of these steps. You know, I don't know about you, but I some of the things I read and have been reading for a long time, I'll pick it up and I'll read and I'll think, gosh, I don't remember that. They take my books and rewrite them at night and edit them and change the words and all that. So the first one says, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. I had no trouble admitting I was powerless over alcohol. I was a failure. Of course I was powerless. I'd always been a failure. And then I came to realize that no, it tells me that I am not responsible for others. I'm responsible to others in certain circumstances, but I am not responsible for anyone else, nor are they for me. So I could no longer point the finger and say if it was because of you. If I didn't take, I could not say that if I wouldn't allow you to point it at me. I didn't like that part of it. They said I was not responsible, but I wanted others to be responsible for me. My life had become, un, our lives had become unmanageable. Yes, it's always been unmanageable. Didn't recognize that at first. I first backed it up to a time out of an argument in a drive-in restaurant yard in a red Pontiac convertible. It been unmanageable since then. And then, of course, I know now it's always been unmanageable and is today. I, I, I would like to have what I hear people say they have, and that is no getting beyond having an unmanageable life. That's not true with me. My life become unmanageable in a second when I think I can do it myself when I think I'm responsible, when I'm not, when I blame others. Uh, it can be unmanageable in so many ways in just a minute. Second step says, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I came to meetings. I came to, I awakened, and I came to believe. And initially I came to believe in the members of AA and Al-Anon. And then, of course, because they, you can't, we can't do it for one another, you let me down. You couldn't solve my problems. So there was no place to turn but on to a power greater than I was. And fearfully almost approaching him. Still of the mind, you have to get good to approach him. And this, of course, led me to step three. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over the care of God. Making the decision is all that's done here. The real action of the decision follows. In four, making the searching, fearless, moral inventory of ourselves. I have, sometimes we'll have somebody say, well, I don't know how to go about an inventory. And I think about one old boy said one time, said, 
Find somebody you can't stand. Just can't stand them. Take their inventory and then put your name up top. <laughs> because we usually see in others what we don't like of ourselves. And another one I, I think about is, well, you've had experience taking your alcoholic's uh, inventory. Just use the same procedure on yourself. I believe this should be a written thing. I go to market. I have a list. It doesn't matter if I forget something. But we're talking about life and death. And death isn't always dead and in the ground. I was telling somebody, I saw her a minute ago, you look in some eyes and there's somebody there. But you look in others and there's no one there. The walking dead. There was a girl, oh, a lady, that some of me, <coughs> some of you remember, she was very active in AA. Her name was Gert Bohannon. And she said that this fifth step, um, the third step for her was deciding was it for Gert, for Gert or for God. And I thought, wouldn't that be neat to have a name Gert? Because then you could remember all the time, is it for Gert or for God? But in the fifth step, taking that written inventory and admitting to God, to ourselves and another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. I remember saying to the lady I was doing this with initially, um, why do I have to admit it to God? You've told me that he knows me better than I know myself. Why am I admitting it to him? And she did what she did for 28 years. She said to me, think about it. She never would give me an answer. She'd just think about it. Or sometimes she'd say, well, maybe you ought to read such and such. And of course, it's not for God's benefit that, he, that I do the admitting in step five. It's an exercise in, in honesty and self-discipline to do a fourth step and to share it in the fifth and admit to God and those things that we say out loud how different they can seem when we can hear them as well as think them and when we're looking in another set of eyes and those other ears are hearing them what too exact nature of our wrongs not what you did on Friday or what you did on Tuesday but what was the nature what was involved why did I lie to people about where Buck was why did I lie to his good family about where he was pride I didn't want them to know that my husband, their son, was drunk and gone. Pride, false pride. There's a good kind of pride, just like I think there's a good kind of anger. It can motivate us to do a better thing. The sixth step says we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character, and it is in God's time. And I'm a firm believer that God removes from us only those things that we cannot do for ourselves. And that doesn't mean we. I can do it for myself. He, I can do it for myself with the tools he has given me. God will not keep me from being a liar if I'm unwilling to be truthful. Um, God could have removed self-pity that I felt in excess, but had he, I'd never learned anything about gratitude because I learned the attitude for self-pity was gratitude and I started making one of those tacky gratitude lists that I thought were so corny and boy do they help you know thank God for dirty dishes we have food to eat thank God there's laundry to be done it means we have more than one outfit a piece to wear thank God the car needs washing it means we have one thank God for dirty ice trees I like to smoke Thank God for everything, the gratitude list. And I don't think it's possible to feel sorry for myself 
and dwell on what I have to be grateful for at the same time. Well, I don't think it's possible for me to do two things at once. I can hardly walk and chew gum, let alone be, feel sorry for myself and grateful at the same time. The seventh step says we humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. People have disputed and debated shortcomings and defects of character and 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 uh, it's the same. You have you're barefooted and you cut one foot coming in here on a piece of glass and the other on a piece of tin. You still got two cut feet. You know. Um, I don't know. I people say I have um, defects of character. I'm not willing to give up. I don't understand that. I don't. I don't know them. If I don't if I don't identify them, I don't have help identifying. I don't know what I need to give up. I had a great deal of difficulty in really um, labeling what my feelings were and what my actions were. I had no problem admitting what I had done or what I'd said, but what motivated me, I didn't know. I really didn't know. I remember going talking to this lady about I was really feeling terrible, and through that conversation and with her husband, uh, was suggested it was self-pity, and I said, "Oh, it is." Well, see, uh, my head knew the antidote, and that was gratitude, but I couldn't label it. We humbly ask Him, humbly, not groveling, but honestly, ask Him. And the eighth step said, it "Made a list of persons we'd harmed, became willing to make amends to them all." And I think that we're prone to think many times it's just repaying, replacing, what have you. But the real amends and the most difficult ones are those that are to the human being. We, we rob them of a, a feeling of self-confidence because we're always complaining or criticizing. We make them feel unloved because we're so wrapped up in ourselves we can't give or offer love. I was thinking about, I had a beautiful sister, a really beautiful sister, and I was always angry and jealous, and I needed to make amends to her and tell her I never praised her and it was nothing to do with her. It was, it was me. It was my lack of self-confidence and my jealousy of her. And I had come into the program then, of course, and I thought, when I get my head together, I'm going to go make amends to her. I'm going to tell her these things. And the time came I went to tell her these things and she had died. So I would encourage you if you feel the need or think you need to go make amends, you might want to do it because you may not be able to have the opportunity to make a direct amends to the person. And making the direct amends in nine, except when to do so, would injure them or others. I think in the name of honesty, people can run, ram their fists through the heartstrings of people and saying, I was just being honest. things that don't need to be said I think there are things that we need to talk over with our higher power we need to talk over with our sponsor but we should not harm others to ease our own guilty conscience I think this is how I can make room 
this cup's full of water that's my past and through these steps I get rid of that foul water and then there's space for the better to be added the purer the clearer never will be complete but there's the opportunity through these steps and then it tells us intend to continue to take personal inventory and when we're wrong promptly admit it I think this uh, too many times we've said I'm sorry oh how often I've said I'm sorry but I didn't mean it so if it has to be with sincerity it has to be promptly I know one time I said in a meeting that I usually took my 10th step at night before I went to, to bed and this one man in the group said well how do you make direct amends promptly if you've done it at night and I thought about that and finally dawned on me and I told him I said the first one I have to admit promptly to is myself to myself and then when I, as soon as I can to the other the 11th step I've often referred to as the happiness step sought doesn't say seek or found I mean it does say seek when you bring in the present but doesn't say found it says sought that means an ever ongoing journey sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand him praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry it out that's the program in a nutshell the open prayer no specifics just knowledge of your will for me the power to carry it out and the 12th step to me isn't an action step as far as what I am to do with me or for me but what I am to do with me now I haven't come through these and it's an ongoing basis I, don't, I haven't done them just once but some people say you don't have to do them but once I, I'm not that persuasion having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps we try to carry this message to others and practice these principles in all our affairs I have had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. Nothing else has changed. You could, an obituary written years ago could still be used, but everything has changed. My perspective. I try to carry this message in many ways, in all ways. Sometimes the message I carry is what not to be like. So if you're sitting in a meeting and you're disenchanted with what you're hearing, learn from it what not to be like. See somebody acting in a way that's inappropriate shall we say I try to learn not to do that it says in our I think it's in our ODAT we can learn silence from the talkative and love from the unkind if we're willing to learn it try to carry this message and practice these principles in all our affairs the word practice not one of those words I looked up seems to teach ourselves through repetition so that means it isn't a done deal. I've got to keep trying. And I know you've all heard the story about the violinist that if he doesn't practice one day, he knows it. Two days, his other people know it. In a week, everyone knows it. There was a lady, um, I don't mean this in a derogatory sense, but a, a black lady down our way that was uh, a country woman, and she spoke in typical southern farm language. And she said, um, the doctor done told me my body can't retain vitamin C from day to day. I have to have a source of it every day. She said, my soul can't retain Al-Anon from day to day. I have to have a source every day. And I've never forgotten Lucille and her saying that. 
I want to talk about something now that maybe isn't program, but to me it is program. And that is the prayer we usually close with. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about it because people have objected to our using it. You know, it says, Our Father, I think of we admitted. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Respecting a power greater than we are, than I am. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is it in heaven? God's will is unchallenged. There is no self-will. He's omnipotent. It's serene and perfect. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How can that be on earth as it is in heaven? It has to start with me. I don't mean I'm the first. But it has to start with me and it has to start with you and everyone. So it seems like a hopeless task that that will ever come to be. I remember asking my sponsor, I had a resentment about a man about something he had done that I didn't, I thought was unkind. And she told me to pray for him. And we were talking along these lines. I said, do I have to pray for Saddam Hussein? She said, who, who created Saddam Hussein? I said, what do you mean? She said, do you believe that God created all people? And I said, yes. So that you must pray for him. You must pray for all God's people. God did not create him to do the things he's doing that you find objectionable. Those are the choices that he made. So I'd pray for Saddam Hussein and Joe. <laughs> you know, and it worked. Um, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, how could we possibly ask God for more materially than we have? We have almost obsessively, it's almost disgusting what we have. It's almost obscene what we have, just us in this room. Food and clothes and cars and jewelry and money and credit cards. But ah, that's not the message to me in this. Give us this day our daily bread. Feed my soul. Make me more charitable of spirit. Let me be more generous. Let me forego criticism. Let me to love unselfishly with no thought of return. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. God, am I never going? Are you never going to forgive me because I don't have the capacity to give forgive that you have? I can't forgive as God forgives. I can't. I'm not able. So I've asked God to not deny me forgiveness because I don't have that capacity. And I pray this, forgive us our trespasses. Forgive us our trespasses. As we are capable of forgiving, not tit for tat. I love our children dearly, but I wouldn't fail to forgive them or stop loving them when they've done things that I wish they hadn't. And if I'm capable of that as a human being, what can God do? So I don't believe. Your religious conviction may be different, but I'm just sharing what I think. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For a long time, I just prayed, God, deliver me from me. I'm the biggest evil in my life. And then I started thinking about lead us not into temptation, and I thought, when I am unawares, 
when I am trying, but I don't see the pitfall. I don't see where I'm getting into gossip. I don't see when I'm getting into things that are none of my business. And I'm really wanting to do right. Leave me away from it. So it's kind of a reverse of leave me away, leave us not into, leave me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. And why? For thine is the kingdom. What's the kingdom? That place where he's omnipotent, unchallenged. The power. What's the power? That's everything. Physical strength, mental capacity, what I need to do what he would have me do. You may be an automobile mechanic. I don't need to know that. In God's wisdom, he has all of that, but he offers that only to those that need it. He'll offer me what I need to do what I need to do in my life. That's part of his power and the glory. The thank yous. Don't put people on pedestals, Virginia. There's only one that belongs on that, and that's your higher power. And I think that is the only thing that he does not want me to do that he cannot forgive as if I do that, put someone better or higher than he. I think it's good to appreciate and acknowledge and, and say thank you to people. My sponsor taught me when people paid me a compliment or did something nice to say thank you and then inside myself to turn it over to God because it's his. All wisdom is his and it comes through vain, all sorts of people and all sorts of events. We can be grateful that we can hear the wisdom. We can be grateful that our ears have been opened up to hear it. We can be grateful for the people that bring the wisdom to us, that they themselves have gotten out of the way and that God's been able to use them as a channel to bring it to us. But the real gratitude for it and the glory for it belongs to him. I've gotten away, but that was just on my heart this morning. And I wanted to share it with you. And I'm going to tell you that this has been an outstanding weekend from my viewpoint in what I've seen and what I've heard and what I've experienced. And I'm very grateful to you. I mean that sincerely. I'm very grateful to you. And I want to close with those lines that mean so much to me. And it tell me, tells me really where the program has brought me and where I am now. And those lines say, I know not what the future holds of marvel or surprise. I'm assured alone that life and death, God's mercy underlies. And if my heart and flesh are weak to bear an untried pain, the bruised reed God will not break, but strengthen and sustain. No offering of my own I have. No works my faith to prove. I can only prove, give the gift he gave and plead his love for love. I, own, I know not where God's islands lift their fronded palms in air. I only know I cannot drift beyond his love and care. And if my faith is vain and if my hopes betray, pray for me that I may find a surer, safer way. And thou, o Lord, who knows thy creatures as they be, forgive me. If too close, I've leaned my human heart to thee. Thank you very much.